Hey, buddy. Hey, it's bedtime stories. The Asshole Book Robert C. Hansen, thought to be Alaska's most prolific serial killer, though the ghost of Israel Keys might have something to say on that, was a mystery like most who decide to start fresh in the coldest corner of America. Hansen made a name for himself in Anchorage as an expert bow hunter, solid family man, and hard-working entrepreneur, a body with a plan unlike many of the destitute from the lower 49 whom flock north to the future every summer, only to find that adventure comes at a heavy price. Most are in too poor of shape to pay. Hansen, through the 70s, was known in Anchorage as Bob the Baker due to his trade and he fit in just fine from the start. Perfectly, really. But he was a lie, the baker. And in the end, he'd be exposed for what he truly was. Alaska's Butcher. The Butcher Baker officially has 17 confirmed kills pinned to his name, but it is suspected that the actual number tallies much higher, at least as high as the number of marks on his kill scroll, a well-worn aviation map covered in trees, rivers, mountains, and dozens of blood-red X's. He was prolific, no doubt about it, but once apprehended, Hansen, like the aforementioned Keys, was concerned solely about the impact his crimes would have on his family. So he did everything in his power to limit the sensationalization of his, well, sensational style of murder, leading investigators to a few partially closed and wrist-bound skeletons out in the woods, in return for his case to be processed as quickly and quietly as possible. The boy, who would become baker, then butcher, then both, was born in small-town Iowa, where he soon found himself at the mercy of his parents and of the other children who would tease him incessantly. Robert's father, a Danish immigrant and baker by trade, taught his son to work hard from an early age. Work hard or get a beating that would end in a cloud of flour and a loaf of pumpernickel wrapped around Robert's skinny little neck. Let's just say that it wasn't an easy childhood and things only got slightly better through the boy's teenage years. When young Robert wasn't needing dough, he was in need of dough, as he wasn't paid for the forced labor at his father's bakery. Not that he'd have had much place to spend it. The neighborhood kids, like I said, were mean, teased him about his acne, ridiculed him for the stutter. A stutter that had presented itself around the time Robert's father had forced him to become right-handed. He wasn't natural, little left-handed Bobby. He wasn't right. And soon, any money he could get his confused hands on was stashed away, until it transformed into his first true friends, his first true loves. Weapons. In the woods, he found a way to vent his frustrations, vent the enormous anger he felt from the rejection. The rejection from the girls, from the boys, the rejection from nature even, as sometimes the woods would send him home empty, his prized rifle and blade heavy on his person like the chip on his shoulder. But he'd get it back, nature, through learning to dominate its creatures. Young Robert Hansen would teach himself how to stalk and be still and win the day with hands covered in the blood of those inferior to him. Bunnies, birds, squirrels. He would nurture his own true nature out there. A lonely boy turned incel, become predator. There was no help for a kid like Bobby back then. No counselor to recognize the harbingers of mental illness. No hotline in the 50s for a pizza pie-faced kid with a stutter and a maniac meathead Dane for a father. 
a kid who had grown into a young man nursing an eight-year erection as he deserted his teens, where he'd been deserting his genes for years, a.k.a. creaming them. No doubt. Pissed that not one of those stuck-up bitches would give him a shot, give him a, a second look even, for the most part. Even a glance, unless it brought with it a sneer and two lovely, yet rolling eyes. Robert Hansen, a baker by trade, by force really, would soon begin a life of payback. He promised himself as he left his teens that going forward he'd be the rolling pin. He was tired of being pushed around, molded, tossed in flour. Around the time of Robert's shift in thinking, almost as soon as he dusted himself off, in fact, a woman suddenly showed interest. But he'd blown it by burning down some school property and getting caught. Such a childish bit of payback. Just embarrassing. Not even worth it. When the next girl fixed her gaze on him, he didn't mess with it. He married it. Made kids with it. Funny how once Robert had lost the drive to force a relationship, it had all happened so naturally. Almost as if his attitude was the problem. All along. Not the acne or the stutter. Ah well. The plan was already set. Two lives he'd live to make up for the first one. The one he decided was over once he turned 20. Two lives he'd live on his terms. The first, as his father's pulverized protege, who had pulled up roots in Iowa as soon as he'd banked and baked enough of that slow-to-rise quiche, then transplanted in Anchorage, Alaska with his young family to begin building up his own bakery business. Under the cool shadow of a mountain, on a dizzyingly open street where it seemed as though he'd just float off into the sky some days, like an angel in his baker whites, carried up and away on the sweet smells of bread and cookies and cakes. The second life took a while to develop, and at times he wasn't sure that it ever would, that maybe it wouldn't be necessary, his dark life. It was so bright and new and fresh in Anchorage that for a while it seemed that one life would cut it, until he saw the girls out there at night, on the same street, under the same mountain. And soon he was picking them up, and next they were putting him down. And before the baker knew it, he was a butcher. Alaska, where a man can breathe, where a hunter can hunt, all different kinds of game, name it, elk, muskox, bison, bear, human being. The baker was a recreational killer, you see. He did it for the thrill of the hunt, for the power of the rape, the execution of the execution. Not for fame or even recognition. He did it for himself, for peace of mind. It's a lot of risk, killing girls. They're kind of difficult to make disappear, even the ones from the street, the willing. You'd be surprised how many more people look out for one another on the street than they do in, say, the suburbs. Of course, the cops have little to no time for street girls. The good cops will listen, keep an eye out, but really, it's pimp work to keep Johns in line. Any detective worth his mustache can't justify chasing tweakers from motel to motel, making sure they're okay, that everybody's playing nice, that nobody's being mistreated beyond what they've agreed to. But once in a while, a girl would come flying down the street bloody and handcuffed or turn up in a ditch brutally raped and barely clinging to life. These girls would be listened to and the men suspected of having nearly killed them, made the book. A book full of dangerous sexual deviants whom the Anchorage PD felt were a step or two from becoming killers. 
Guys like Robert Hansen, who would be accused on more than one occasion of threatening to kill a girl he picked up, of having done things, said things that went beyond creepy and entered the realm of terrifying. It's hard work to scare these girls. Even harder work killing them, in a discreet manner while running a business, tending to a family, while becoming one of the most respected and prolific game hunters in Anchorage's memory. The baker was a free man, and that his hours of work and play were his for the choosing. So when he found just the right girl at just the right time, he decided then and there to take her, to slap the cuff he kept attached to the passenger seat around her wrist, drive out to a discreet motel, or on rare occasions to his own house, if the wife and kids were gone. Here he chained them by the neck to a post in his basement. We know this from the one who got loose. And have his revenge for all the rejection he'd endured in that other life back in Iowa. Then, if they were particularly feisty, worthy, game, so to speak, it was out to his bush plane the next morning, and a flight far, far away from where a scream could do its damage, out to his cabin, out to his favorite hunting ground, where a man can breathe, a woman can plead, and a monster can order its prey to run. Robert Hansen found chasing half-naked women through the remote wilderness to be great exercise. For his demons, demons born from a childhood typical to that of many other future serials, one riddled with rejection, abuse, the burning of abandoned structures, piss on the bed possibly, the torture of animals, the plotting, the revenge once he came of age out in the Alaskan wild. People tend to romanticize the wilderness. It sure looks nice from a window, feels compelling from the pages of a book, but in reality, it's brutal out there. The deer get the worst of it, with the bugs, the ticks, the food, always scrounging for a nervous mouthful of twigs and berries, forever spooked, terrified eyes twitching on the sides of their head, constantly on the lookout for predators. Predators that have no issue eating them alive, ripping a buck to the ground, breaking its neck, then starting in on its own twig and berries gaining access to the good stuff through the anus while it mules paralyzed. Yes, the deer may have it the worst, but for little over a decade, through the 70s and into the early 80s, they weren't alone in the spots marked on the baker's map. They, for once, weren't the most brutalized dead on those hills. Robert Hansen is dead. He passed rather peacefully in 2014 at the age of 75, with over 450 years left in his sentence. The cause of death? Natural. The same way his victims died, really. For what could be a more natural death than having been hunted, killed, than left to feed the forest? Perhaps that's a little disingenuous to say Hansen's victims died of natural causes. There's nothing natural, after all, about abduction, about rape, about being hunted for sport, for a man's pleasure. There's nothing natural about men like Robert Hansen men that made Anchorage, Alaska their stocking grounds in a time before investigators had access to sophisticated databases. Men, no, not men, perverts, johns, creeps, that had their images collected by arresting officers concerned about their treatment of sex workers and filed into a community binder for future identification purposes. A binder affectionately known as The Asshole Book. Anchorage's asshole book contained two active serial killers during the 70s. Robert Hansen, whom I feel we've gotten enough of for now, and Gary Zeiger, a wild man that we'll get to know a little about right now. 
This is a game, you see. A two-for-one before we all fall down. Or at least the girl does. The girl we came to meet on this cold Alaskan street 50 years ago. But first, let's take a look at Gary Zeiger. 20-year-old Gary Zeiger, who in the early 70s, where every horrible story seems to take place, would end up dead on the side of Anchorage's Seward Highway near a marsh named Potter's. A gunshot wound in his chest large enough for Robert Hansen to pass an order of danishes through to the responding officers. Officers who were none too surprised to find Zeger in such a state. They knew him well. Gary, like Bob the Baker, had made it into the asshole book. And they'd been watching him for months. After Gary beat a murder charge that just about everybody in Anchorage felt should have stuck. ZZ Mason had last been seen hitchhiking to an auto shop, where six days later, her repaired vehicle still would sit. On this sixth day of her disappearance, children playing in a gravel pit found Zizi's brutalized body under a tree. She was naked from the waist down, and her wrists had been bound behind her back. She was covered in stab wounds. Investigators would discover tire tracks in a nearby back road, along with bloody drag marks leading into the trees surrounding the gravel pit. The tire tracks yielded a clue that should have put Gary Zeger away for at least twice the amount of time he managed to stay alive himself. Three of the killer's heavily treaded tires had been put on his vehicle backwards. When Zeger became a suspect, after a friend of his claimed that he'd been in Zeger's truck the day Zizi had gone missing, and that Zeger had picked a girl up matching the murder woman's photo, detectives went to check out Gary Zeger's tires. They found three to be on backwards, and soon made the arrest. Inside Zeger's truck, they discovered blood smears. But back in the early 70s in Alaska, they could only deduce that the blood came from a higher primate. Long story short, Zeger got away with it. The jury in the end felt that Gary probably did it, but that the prosecution failed to bring enough evidence. That Gary's high-paid lawyer had done the better job. Gary admitted in court to having had picked up a girl the day Zizi disappeared and that it could have been the murdered girl. He even admitted to making out with her in a parking lot, but said he had dropped her off soon after. Witnesses backed up this claim. Witnesses brought forward by the defense and who were likely paid off to say they'd seen Zizi walking down the road hitchhiking hours after Gary Zeiger had allegedly picked her up. Another witness said he'd seen Gary driving with an 800-pound orangutan crammed in the back seat of his trunk, tending to a wound around the same time, which sealed the deal. <laughs> That's a joke. I made it up. Guilty. Guilty like Gary Zeiger, the 20-year-old with a hole in his chest at the top of this section of the story. A hole big enough that the butcher baker could have pushed a loaf of stale pumpernickel through. Anyway, <laughs> he's dead. They're both dead. Hansen and Zeiger. But our story is not. All right, everybody. Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... <laughs> Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks, if you're not a nicotine user, 
or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit, Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Catherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com Gary Zeiger had made the asshole book after his botched murder trial. And as you know, the Anchorage PD had been keeping tabs on him ever since. They knew he was trouble. Knew he was a killer. Zizi wasn't the only one he'd killed and gotten away with. There was at least 12, including a young native man whom he'd picked up hitchhiking with a friend, drove out into the woods, and, as a joke, asked to borrow his buddy's gun to scare the kid. According to this friend of Zeger's who would eventually go to police, Zeger then ordered the sobbing hitcher out of the truck and onto his knees, where he forced his penis into the victim's mouth. As a reward for doing as he was forced to do, the young man was then shot to death. When I was 13, I remember hearing a story like this from a cop. A cop, he was a good one, who would come up to us when we'd hang out in this park, smoking cigarettes, smoking weed, and screwing around, trying to get into trouble, but not quite knowing where to find it half the time. And he'd tell us to go do things like, you know, he'd throw a basketball at us and tell us to go play basketball or try to uh, push us to get organized and, you know, do other things such as play manhunt in, in the in the park instead of just bumming around. Uh, a good guy. But he'd also try to scare us. And the one story he told was of a kid who apparently had been walking through that same park ten years previous when a car pulled up, offered him a ride, and uh, the man forced the kid to suck his dick at gunpoint. And they never found the guy said he was just probably passing through. 
So it was a warning from this cop, and it stuck with all of us. I remember us talking about it forever. I still think about it. He was murdered afterwards, but I still, I couldn't fathom it. As a heterosexual, sucking a man's dick when I was 13 seemed like a nightmare <laughs> to me. And that's not homophobic. That's just being honest. I've had gay friends who allegedly feared vaginas as much as I apparently feared dicks at that time. But it's not just the genitalia, of course. It's the being forced to do something against your will. Like if an old lady had put a gun to my head and told me to get to work on her, I would have been close to as scared. You know what, nah, I've, that would just be funny. Sorry, I tried. I'm afraid, afraid of dicks, all right? It just seemed to me at the time to be the worst shit I could think of being forced to suck a man's dick at gunpoint. Of course, I learned later that there was much more terrible fates that can be had. The Candyman's torture board comes to mind. But it's funny to think now that that was, in my young mind, the worst fate I'd ever considered. Hilarious. Anyways, Gary Zager beat this case, too. After hearing that the police were at his friend's house, whom he borrowed the gun from to kill the young hitchhiker, Gary sped over in his truck, walked past the officers who were waiting out front for a search warrant to go through. Gary's friend had requested one, then alerted Gary of their presence, I assume. Entered the home and retrieved the murder weapon. Apparently, there was nothing the authorities could do, as the killer then bid them good day and drove off to dispose of the evidence. It's a lot. And those are only two missed opportunities on Gary Zager, Zeger, whatever his fucking name is. There were more that Bob Seeger killed, <laughs> but in the end he undid himself. Zeiger badly wanted to be a part of Anchorage's Brothers Biker Club, so he took it upon himself to kill the new wife and child of a strip club owner who had refused to pay protection money to the brothers. The brothers being a recent acquisition of the Hells Angels at this time, and Zeiger being a probationary member of the Brothers Biker Club. This was completely out of line on Zager's part. He was out of control, a true homicidal maniac, destined to bring ruin to anybody affiliated with him. Such a problem that Anchorage's criminal underground decided to do what the justice system seemed incapable of. They shot him like a dog in the street. Clean. Simple. Necessary. Zager's counterpart, Robert Hansen, who again was an active serial killer at the same time, in the same place, had his own close calls before the evidence became too obvious for even the most porous judicial system to not lock him up. A girl got loose. Her name was Cindy Paulson, and she'd been one of the girls meant to be hunted. The butcher baker had advanced his kill ritual to just outside of his bush plane when she'd made a run for it, eventually being picked up by a concerned motorist who found her screaming in the street beside the little airstrip, chains around her neck and wrists, Bruises, the only thing covering her naked lower half. Cindy was not initially taken seriously. Her story twisted by Hanson into a ploy for extortion money. He claimed she'd been willing. Claimed she was just a junkie prostitute out to blackmail a successful business owner who had a habit of picking up girls. It almost worked. But in the end, Cindy would get her revenge. She had left her shoes behind, intentionally, in Hanson's vehicle, to prove she'd been there. And their discovery led to a further search of Hanson's home. The butcher baker had not been able to help but keep mementos of his victims. Bracelets, necklaces. He was, after all, a trophy hunter. And in the end, the evidence against him was overwhelming. Cindy Paulson was not the only one to get away. Others had surely been able to escape as well, but most had been simply let go by the baker, on the condition they never say a word about having been kidnapped, tortured, raped, and set loose in the trees somewhere stupendously desolate. 
It gave the baker great power, great satisfaction to know that they would hold this incredible secret. That's how serious they felt their attacker to be. They knew he'd come for them, hunt them down. He'd done it before, after all. Cindy Paulson became the voice of all the girls Robert Hansen had ruined. Her testimony would play a large factor in finally putting the butcher baker away. For good. Good. Good enough, they say. That Zyger was dead and that Hansen was locked up. Close the book. Turn the page on these assholes. And we will, in a moment. But before we do, let us recognize a ghost. At least one of them. So many souls get left unspoken of in these particular stories. They stand around waiting for their name, for their story to be told. And more often than not, unless they died in particularly horrible fashion or were innocent in an outstanding way, they are overlooked, grouped together beneath a blanket statement such as untold number of, or worse, under that sad excuse for a cross that we call a plus, as in 17 plus victims. It's shameful, at times, this form of storytelling. It never feels good enough for how bad it must have been. It feels inadequate. Perhaps by dredging it up, by consuming it with fascination. We all etch our names in an asshole book. Ah, well. Hard to say for sure. 17-year-old Beth Van Zanten was an outstandingly innocent young lady on her way to a convenience store in Anchorage when she was kidnapped and killed in a particularly horrible fashion. The date was December 23rd of 1971, when a killer in a truck picked her up. The weather was frigid, miserable, this day, even by Alaska standards, and it's likely Beth was convinced to take a ride as a result. The baker had been busy during this period having botched the kidnapping of a real estate secretary at her home on November 21st, then successfully terrorized a teenage sex worker on December the 19th by raping her at gunpoint. How do you rape a prostitute, you may ask? Well, you don't pay her for one, and two... Who am I kidding? You never asked that question, did you? It's about consent, obviously. And if you don't know that, then for sure you're in the book. Gary Zyger's first known murder occurred the following summer, and some details of the Van Zanten murder point to him as the perpetrator. This is a fascinating unsolved case, as it occurred right smack in the middle of both serial killers' mutual stalking grounds, and around the same time that both were mastering the dark art of successfully subduing a terrified young woman. Something that sounds not too difficult, but if you've ever tried to handle, say, a cat that doesn't want to get into a cage you'll have felt what a living thing can do when it feels its life is in danger. A woman is a lot more difficult than a cat when put into a corner. Trust me. <laughs> we will never know for certain which killer, if either, was responsible for the death of Beth Van Zen. And pretty much everything we know about her death itself is from the way she was discovered on Christmas morning by two brothers out taking wildlife photos after the miserable weather leading up to the 25th of 1971 in Anchorage, Alaska, had broke. She was naked from the waist down, and it took but one glance at her through the lens of an old Nikon to send the brothers running for help. The Beth Van Zanten crime scene was a nightmare come to life. Investigators, summoned to the ravine in McHugh State Park, fresh from opening gifts and enjoying Christmas breakfast with loved ones, may have at first, in the spirit of the season, 
considered for a brief moment the girl in the snow akin to the likeness of an angel. A fallen angel. Beth was a pretty girl, and her death pose was touched up by a light sheen of snow that cloaked the reality of how hard she'd died. The photographer who discovered the missing teen had initially thought that a store mannequin had been thrown down the steep embankment from where a waterfall cascaded into a nearby river. The face had told him different. Even in death, the girl looked more alive than any doll or dummy could be made to seem. There is a look about the eyes of human beings, that of either being so clearly alive or, without a shadow of a doubt, being dead. The eyes of Beth Van Zanten were those of a dead girl, but the scene around her, on closer inspection, was alive with the story of how they came to be so. She had fallen into a bowl. All around were signs of her struggle to find a way out. The snow had been close to three feet when she had stumbled down here from the parking lot and picnic area above. Tire track marks indicated that someone had circled for some time, probably in search of the prey that had escaped them. It's not clear if those tires were on backwards, but Beth's hands were bound behind her with speaker wire, the same type that would be found in Gary Zeiger's house after his death. But to many, the girl's death had eerie similarities to Cindy Paulson's escape from the butcher baker. Beth Van Zanten succumbed to the elements, though not before attempting to climb out of the ravine at multiple spots, each marked by her eventual fall back to the bottom, from where she continued her attempts to climb free like a spider in a sink, until she slumped over, exhausted and hypothermic. She likely had been afraid to scream out for help at first, but in the end, judging by the evidence on the surrounding cliff face of how hard she tried to live, churning through snow with naked legs and hands tied behind her back, Beth Van Zanten may have welcomed one of those heads from the asshole book, whether it would have been the Bakers or Zygers to have peered over the ledge from where she'd escaped, then collect her back into the truck to do what they would. Anything but this. Cold, lonely, and desperate death. Anything, Luna? Really? Didn't you say that being forced to blow a dude was the worst thing you could think of? Now being viciously raped, tortured, and possibly hunted? Sounds decent. For as much as I read and write and watch this shit, I'm still removed from it, I suppose. I hope you nor I ever have to know the kind of despair so many of the murdered were, are, forced to feel as their last feeling. And I hope they don't roam around waiting to be remembered by dicks like me. Because it's spooky business, this, when you're writing the last of such a story at midnight beside a nine-year-old and he jumps awake in the dark and mimes strangling something above him. It makes you wonder sometimes, in this business, how long it's been for some of these lost souls since someone has dusted off, provoked their name. I think I'm all right, but I'll be damned if it doesn't feel like the abyss is staring back at times. And I'm too far in for it to matter. Hey, at least I'm not alone.